great morning to be back with you all, and it's great to see your faces. How are you? Good, good, good. Awesome. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Appreciate that affirmation. A lot of guitars on the stage today. That was, we had like nine of them, like all different types, you know, different types of people playing them. That's awesome, right? Uh, maybe a great setup for today's message, right? You've got all these different types of instruments that are all on the same page and uh, but not necessarily playing the same thing, but playing toward the same thing. That was an awesome display. I um, appreciate you, um, worship team and band, for leading us in that way. Well, hey, listen, greetings. Uh, if you are a guest of Gospel Hope Church, whether this is your first Sunday or your 15th Sunday, uh, or you are uh, viewing us online, uh, we are still in our series entitled Ecclesiology, where we are doing a study of the church. Uh, if you're visiting and you have not uh, yet received a gift from us, would you please make sure you pass by uh, the greeting station on your way out? We would love to have an encounter with you and show you some love. But more importantly, if you have been in or out because this is the summertime and you've maybe missed uh, a few of the series uh, contributions, we have been going in a variety of different places, but all in the same direction as we have been exploring this topic of the church, ecclesiology. Uh, we've talked about the church being transformative. We've talked about the church being offensive. We've talked about the church being inclusive and exclusive. We've talked about the church being visible and invisible talked about the church being collaborative, and today we're going to talk about the church being unified, or if I wanted to stick with the theme phonetically, it is cohesive, cohesive. So uh, we're going to pray and ask that you would join me in that area as our sound team is working. I think my mic might be a little loud for what's going to happen later in the message, but um, I trust you to know what you're doing uh, more than I do. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you and I praise you this morning for every opportunity um, to stand before your people. Uh, let there be more of you and less of me. Heavenly Father, these people did not come to hear the simple ramblings of a scattered brain of a 49-year-old man. They came to hear from you. Lord God, would you give them exactly that? I believe what your word says, that if your children were to ask for bread, you would not give them a stone, or if they would ask for fish, you wouldn't give them a serpent. Lord God, I believe that you'll give your people exactly what they need. You know the unique needs that exist in this room, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, financial, physical. Lord God, you know every need, even if we cannot define and articulate them. We trust you with our needs. We ask that you would meet us, O oh God, and allow us to experience what your word promises to offer, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that we would be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Um, I pray, O oh God, that there would be a clear display and declaration of the gospel in such a way that we would all be left saying there was a demonstration of the spirit. You showed up and you delivered mail right to our address that was uniquely designed for us. And you unpack it in our lives in a beautiful way. Allow us to hear the gospel clearly, to see your son more beautifully, to appreciate your word more powerfully. And equip us, Lord God, to do your work more dutifully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn 
to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, and we'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. That is our launch pad this morning. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Beginning with verse 10, it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This appeal um, it's the same word for those of you who may be familiar with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when the Apostle Paul says, I beseech you, right, by the mercies of God. This, this strength and this energy is the same underlying, it's a word in the same underlying language when he says, I appeal to you. He's earnestly begging. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you and that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you by brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank my God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, and so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, and behold, or beyond that, I do not know of anyone else that I baptized. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What's happening in the passage that makes this particular admonition necessary? The Corinthian church, historically, was incredibly diverse. Not only diverse from a cultural perspective, diverse from a, uh, from a conversion situation perspective, the stories that various people brought into that church as to where they were being saved from, we'll get into that more deeply later. But also, the, uh, uh, this church was incredibly uh, uh, diverse in, in, in the way that it viewed those who came and shared the gospel with them. This church is incredibly diverse. And this diversity that they experienced uh, also was manifest in the gifts. If you've read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that this church was inundated with all of the gifts and manifestations, and the Apostle Paul celebrated that amongst them. And it was kind of interesting that page after page and chapter after chapter, that it seems as if all of the beautiful and grand and wonderful diversity that God had invested in them, Satan was trying to exploit it to become reasons for division uh, and Diverse, and, and diverseness and controversy. And it's, it's spelled out right here on the opening pages. Just a couple of days ago, my daughter and I were um, at a baseball game. You should see an image on the screen here, Braves game in particular. And uh, while we were standing there looking out over the crowd, my daughter makes a very keen observation, or she asks a question. She says, Dad, why is there not more booing at baseball games? I said, occasionally you get some booing when there's like a bad call and, and really it's people disagree with something that the umpires have, have you know, have, have weighed in on. I said, you get some booing there. But I said, you know, uh, typically the, the baseball crowd has a deeper sense of decorum. Uh, the, the baseball crowds are not as rowdy as, as other groups like the football and the soccer and the basketball people. 
And as I was kind of verbally processing that out loud, I kind of retracted that a little bit. I still believe it in one corner of my heart. But one thing that I do believe is different about baseball. And the reason that there's less hearty, rigorous booing and, uh, and, and less cantankerous rivalry in the stands is because of the way, base, the way baseball stadiums are made. Notice that the baseball stadiums, while they are able to accommodate all kinds of diversity, people who are, are there to root for various teams and have various levels of enjoyment about what's happening on the field, it accommodates diversity, but the construction of the stadiums don't naturally facilitate division. Here's, here's what I mean. There is no end zone that belongs to this team or that team. I mean, the closest thing you have to that in baseball is you got the dugouts for the respective teams that are along the first and third base lines. But, but in reality, you can't walk into a baseball stadium and go, oh, I'm going to sit on that side with my people or that side. I mean, there's pockets of people all over the place, diverse levels of fandom and fanship and who you're rooting for. They're all sitting right there next to one another. And because of that close proximity and the fact that we don't get to say that, hey, that's our goal and that's his, our side of the stadium, it, 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 facilitates, it facilitates diverse participation, but it doesn't necessarily, or it accommodates diverse participation, but doesn't necessarily facilitate some of the divisive things that we see happening in other stadiums. Now, this is not an indictment on stadium configuration. But I do believe that there is a subtle analogy for the local church here is that we ought to be built and designed in such a way that we 100% accommodate diversity, but not in a way that foments division. Now, the Apostle Paul has obviously identified a problem within the Corinthian church, and the main problem is, is that its great diversity has been exploited by Satan to become divisive. And he encourages the church to latch hold to four basic things to help fight Satan's underlying work. And I want to share those with us as well because I believe that this is not just a historic problem. I also believe that it has very rich contemporary application for you and I. We are an incredibly diverse church not only ethnically and economically, but situationally, how people came to be a part of this local church. We are a church who most recently, within our own history, underwent a merger, and we, we, we came into a, a great, beautiful expression of multi-generational diversity. There's people who have, were, were born in and around this church and have been here for 80 years, and then there's others of us who just got here, and we have a little bag in our hand with a cup. I mean, we literally just got here. There are others who came uh, uh, from Blueprint Church, who was one of our sending churches. Others who came from Fishers of Men, which is one of our, our, our foundational uh, 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 nucleuses. Others who came from Camp Sedine. There are other people who, who came during the Belvedere years when we were worshiping just down the street. There, there's people that were part of the launch team. There are people who came during COVID because their church was completely shut down, having no in-person gatherings. And it was like, we need a place that's worshiping in person. And they located and found us. And so here we are. We're this hodgepodge, this beautiful hodgepodge of people who have different stories as to how they got here. Others of you are here because you know what? You are a diverse and multi-ethnic family and you want your children to grow up in a setting where as much of their lives look like their dinner table as does uh, uh, where they live, work, and play. And you want the worship setting to look like that. 
Others of you are here because you're curious, can this thing really work? And the Lord captures your heart. There are so many different stories as to why we are all here. And we are very much an echo or something like what the Corinthian church was like as well. And I believe that we must be super duper diligent to make sure that we give our undivided attention to these four principles that I'm going to unpack in just a moment because the church needs to fight to ensure Satan does not make our diversity divisive. We must fight to make sure that Satan is not allowed to make our diversity divisive. Why? Because divisiveness is natural. It is a natural reflex of humanity to divide ourselves into like pockets. It takes a special work to pull us into unity where there is natural diversity. People have to be intentional about that. And so these four premises that I believe the Apostle Paul uh, wants us to give undivided attention to in order to protect our diversity from becoming divisive is this. They're right, laying right there on the surface of the text. He says, first and foremost, I appeal to you, brothers, that by the name of our Lord, that you, all, that you are all of agreement, that you all agree. So we're looking for agreement. The second one is the call to unity. A third is a call to the same mindset. And a fourth is to having the same judgment. Let's walk these out. Look at the A part of verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. The appeal to agreement is on the basis of the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. During prayer, we looked at this passage. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were all called, of one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I believe that there is a great call that agreement would exist in this way in the church. Agreement is a call to worship, not personal censorship. You might think at first glance that this call that we all say the same thing is somehow to press the mute button on diverse opinions or diverse appeals or diverse passions or diverse viewpoints of life. No, the call is an upward call. You see, when we are too focused on the details of how we differ, we miss the areas in which we are the same. And so the scriptures are not asking us to go through a social experiment of trying to see where we're the same, but a spiritual exercise of understanding that we all have one Lord one faith, one baptism, and one body, and one spirit into which we have been drawn. That is a call to worship. So worship is more than looking on the screen and singing the same things, but it is looking at the screen and reflecting and enjoying God and engaging him on the same things. We are affirming what we agree on about God. Some of your Bibles in that same passage would not just say, say the same things, but it would say, I pray or hope that you would have the same testimony. What is your declaration of who God is? Or as the Apostle Paul would say later in the book of Philippians, there's going to come a time that based on the work of Jesus, we will all bend our knee and every tongue will confess and every knee shall bow and we shall all say in unison that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. One of the greatest ways to protect our church's diversity against the divisiveness of the adversary is to let our, let our diversity dissolve itself in a collective worship of who Jesus is. If we are not continuously looking upward in worship, we will always view this call of God as a work of censorship. 
Can we say the same things about the work of Jesus for us before we get into the particulars of what differs between us? I, I think that's the appeal. I think that's the action item for even a church like ours. When you hit these doors, I can assure you, your hearts and minds will immediately see differences. You'll immediately walk in and go, man, there's a lot more black people here today than there was last week. Or vice versa, depending on your disposition. Oh, look, there's another multi-ethnic couple. Where are they from? These are not negative observations, but the, the human being naturally can localize its focus in on things that are different about its environment because we, we are creatures who operate off of an algorithm. This is the environment in which I enjoy, and something about it is no longer the same. And so when we come in, our heart must have a natural orientation toward worship because worship immediately pulls our focus on what? For, to what Jesus has done for us before it gives us focus on what differs between us. Quality worship draws us into a, a unified focus on the authority, identity, and the affinity of Jesus. When we agree on his authority that he is the head of the body, and that he holds all things together by his word. When we agree on his identity, that he is the one and only savior for my unique sin and solution, regardless of how divergent my sin was, he is the only solution. That is how his identity. When I recognize his affinity, which is to make us more like him, regardless of where I merged into the, the, the highway of redemption, no matter what exit ramp I got on, whether it was 15 years ago, whether it was five minutes ago, we're all merged into this direction of being made to look more like Christ as we glorify the Father. This is what the Scriptures call us to, to be in agreement on. So it's not about, again, muting you or personal censorship, but this call into agreement is to say the same thing that God is saying about his son. Can we say that together and mean it? He's calling us into agreement, worship and not censorship. The Bible would say it this way, or these are my words, but it's, the Bible says this, says this, when we fix our eyes on the right things in Jesus, we don't focus on the wrong things among us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Fixing. The word fixing means to gaze heartily with the intent to not be distracted or deviate from anything else. Has anybody ever here, here seen uh, greyhound racing? You know what makes that work? Just y'all y'all ashamed that you know what greyhound racing is? I'm not affirming it. I'm just using it. So don't nobody email me about the abuse of greyhounds. But greyhound racing is where they have this rabbit on a stick, a fake rabbit, and they run him out in front of the dogs. And they are not looking at each other. They are not looking at you. They don't care about who their owner is or what number they're wearing. They are trying to get the rabbit. They have a singular focus, and they are running hard after him. This is the imagery that we are called into. Can we agree that this is what God is doing, and this is what we're going after? When we fix our eyes, that's what we see in Hebrews chapter 12. Their eyes are fixed on Jesus as they're running their race. Let's look again at verse 10, but a different part. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united, that you be united. Hear me out. Unity is not a term that is unique to the church. Unity does have just an inherent function of goodness. 
Unity is a good thing. We see it operating all the time in various ways. As a matter of fact, even the Bible gives us a little cameo of unity back at the Tower of Babel. But hear me carefully on this. Unity by itself is beautiful and useful, but unity by Christ is unstoppable. Hear me carefully. Unity by itself is useful and it's beautiful. If you've ever been to a parade, unity is beautiful. If you read about it, if you ever read in your Bibles back about the Tower of Babel and all of these people who were of the same language and of the same mind, who got together on the same project and decided to build a tower up to heaven, God himself in said what? He didn't endorse what they were doing, but he recognized what they were doing and said, unless I get involved, nobody can stop them. That they would, they would succeed, that their unity was useful. And because unity is inherently useful, we have to make sure that it is deployed in a way that is endorsed by Christ. Unity is useful and it is beautiful, but unity by Christ is unstoppable. Why? You see, at the Tower of Babel, the people brought their unity together to make a name for themselves, and God stopped it. But at the church at Pentecost, something else happened. At, at the Tower of Babel, God diversified the languages. But at the Church of Pentecost, by his spirit, he unified the languages. He gave the apostles in that moment a spiritual demonstration of the, uh, they spoke in tongues and people from a variety of different nations heard the wondrous works of God in their native tongues and they were all amazed. And so all these divergent people groups who had come into the region were certainly brought together. And it was the, the polar opposite contrasting moment to the Tower of Babel. So while at the Tower of Babel, they were trying to make a name for themselves, at the Church of Pentecost, God was making a name for himself. The church is God's tower. It's the, it's the refuge, it's the place where God says, this is where I want my people to rally, and I want the Spirit to enable them to work and move together in a way that makes a name for me, not a name for them. The purpose of the church is not just to be a powerful display, but also to be a powerful deployment. Take a look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and following. And Jesus answered him, talking to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This is, remember the, the great theological pop quiz, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Peter got the right answer. Jesus responds affirmatively and says, listen, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Sounds pretty militant to me. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what is he saying? That we as a church, while we gather collectively as this beautiful parade of diversity, man, look at all of these colors and shapes and strides and, and different hues of life and conversion stories. Look at it. We're beautiful display of the parade of the grace of God here. But we're also supposed to be part B, deployed. We are called to deploy, to take this incredible diversity and to deploy it into the world so that the gospel is not only a great banner under which we gather, but also a great wrecking ball which we wield in culture. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. These are Jesus' words, not mine. The church is a great display of the reconciling hope of the gospel, but we should also be actively deploying the reconciling hope of the gospel. At the Corinthian church, I want you to notice how this powerful display of diversity also positioned them to be a great deployment of gospel power. People were being saved from temple prostitution, theft, 
all kinds of illicit and immoral behaviors. They were being saved from uh, uh, bowing to, working in, and rallying around uh, the temple of Aphrodite as well as that of Poseidon. I mean, two idol gods had deep entrenchments in the city. And so the people who were getting saved were, were coming into the Corinthian church from a variety of different conversion experiences. And so the difficulty that they're experiencing, quite honestly, is just the opportunity cost that, of a church that is deeply missionally engaged. I would love for the biggest problems that we are solving at Gospel Hope Church to be that there's a group of people who used to practice witchcraft that live in the same neighborhood who are sitting over here and they want to have a community group and another group of people who used to be neo-Nazis who've, who've just given it all up and they're like, man, can we have a community group together, Pastor Rod? I would love for that to be my problem that I'm solving. Why to say, well, I don't want y'all in a moment of weakness to pull out the Ouija board one night while everybody's letting their hair down. So no, I need to bust that group up. But I do want you in a community group come connect Sunday. I would love for some of you former converted, conformed, and newly sanctified neo-Nazis, I would love for you to be in a group in South Decatur or South Decab if you don't mind, because I'd love for you to break bread and share space with others who look radically different from you so that your sanctification continues. This is the problems that I want to solve, not whether or not the drums are too high or whether or not the songs are too slow or whether or not we did too many hymns. These are the problems that I would like for us to be solving because where there's more missions, there's gonna be more problems. As a matter of fact, I would say this, that the more missional we become, the more maniacal we have to be about unity. The more missional we become, the more maniacal we need to be about unity. Because if we are really casting a broad net, there will always be people who are radically different from us occupying these pews who've newly given their hearts to Christ. And as we encounter their different conversion stories, as we encounter their different circumstances of life, the person who has formerly and perhaps still makes choices and smells like things that you could never possibly imagine will share a pew with you as they are all seeking Christ just like you. We want the Corinthian problem from a missional perspective. Again, it's just the opportunity cost of being a church that is greatly involved in missions. You know, Luke says this, to whom much is given. Luke 12, verse 48, to whom much is given, much is required. God has given us much. God has given us much. It might not look like much to you because you don't get a chance to stand up here and see all of you, but this is much. This is so much incredible diversity that we've been blessed with. Diversity of gifts, skill, faces, economic generation. There's so much out here to whom much is given, much is required. This is not just a parade to be beautiful. This is an army to be deployed. Would you like to look at verse 10 one more time? Thank you. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus. Remember that. That's the authority that the appeal is coming from. This is not a sociological appeal from unity. This is a theological appeal for unity. By the name of Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, and so that there be no divisions among you, and that you, you be united in the same mind. Having the same mind isn't being brainwashed, but it is putting my brain to work for the same goal. 
not long ago, I attended a um, birthday celebration. And at the birthday celebration, there were all these diverse people. And it was kind of interesting because one of the exercises that we went through uh, during our time of introduction was to find out how we all knew the person. And we all had these diverse points of entry into relationship with the birthday person. But then something else really powerful happened during our gathering. We had a tug of war. And so the tug of war took now these very diverse people and put them into two teams. And so when we got together, in the, in the teams that had to grab hold of the rope, you had the following. You had big people, you had little people. You had strong people, you had weak people. You had males, you had females. You had people that knew the birthday person from work. You had them that knew the birthday person from church, that knew the birthday person from having grown up in the neighborhood with them. You know, you, the, the birthday person was their roommate. You had all of these divergent points of entry, but we were celebrating one person, and now we had to come together and put our hand to the same road with the same energy. Some people were barefooted. Some people had on shoes. Some people were serious. Some people were just kind of giggling. But we were called to win and to do something. And so all of us had to figure out how to put our brains to work to use our diversity to win. Whoever was the heaviest, you need to be the anchor. Whoever is the lightest, just get, in, get sandwiched in between two people that really know what they're doing. Whoever doesn't have on shoes, we got to look out for you if you do have shoes. And you know what we all did, regardless of our diverse backgrounds or how we knew the one person that we came to see and celebrate? We all had to lean in the same direction and pull with all of our strength. And there was something that we accomplished that we could not accomplish alone, but we had to be pulling in the same direction. And so I believe that that is the gospel's call to be of the same mind. It's not about, again, brainwashing, but it's how do we make the brain work? How do I, when I come to Gospel Hope Church, not be brainwashed, but how do I make my brain work to say, okay, Lord, we've got one direction in which we must pull. How do I take my unique strengths and my weight, my abilities, my knowledge, my past experience, and lean and pull in one direction to help this church advance the gospel, make the name of Jesus clear, make the gospel, pull the, pull the unbeliever closer. How do I do all those things? How do I lean in and how do you lean in? Regardless of, the, think about this, every one of us has diverse passions. There are things that matter deeply to me that you don't give a hill of beans about, and vice versa. And so the Bible calls us to figure out how these divergent passions can get us to all lean, put our hands on the rope, and pull in one direction. And that one direction, not the group but that one direction is how does this make Jesus clearer? How does it make the gospel go further? And how does it draw unbelievers closer? So if you ever lose sight as to why you hear or why diversity matters or why this matters, it is because we are designed to take this unique and diverse way and pull in one direction. Paul puts it this way, or he gives us the following analogy. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verse 12, he says, I mean that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. But then Paul addresses this head on in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. In other words, Paul says, yes, yeah, sometimes I'm the anchor, sometimes I'm the front guy, but me and Apollos, we're pulling in the same direction, but it's God who gives the wind. 
And so for each of you have, who have divergent passions, this is the appeal of the unified church. This is the appeal of the cohesive church. This is the appeal of the gospel. How do you take your preferences, your gifts, and your skills and ability, and how do you lean with the rest of this body in one direction to draw the unbeliever closer, to make the gospel go further, and to make Jesus clearer? Understand, understand the backdrop in Corinth. Two things are happening. There's not only a personality preference because of who may have shared the gospel with them. You know, Paul camped out, spent time in certain people's homes, led them to the Lord. Apollos did likewise. And so naturally, there's going to be an affinity to some of those personalities. But there was also an underlying cultural current within Corinth where um, itinerant speakers would regularly come through and they would muster crowds for themselves. And people would latch on to these itinerant speakers based on their oratory ability, which is why more than one time the Apostle Paul says in the letter to the Corinthian church, when I came declaring the gospel, I wasn't doing it with the excellence of men's speech because I didn't want to let the air out of the gospel. I didn't want that to become a distraction. I didn't want you to latch on to me because you thought I was a great and skilled orator. He says it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came in amongst you, I claimed to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified so that your faith would not rest in my words, but in a demonstration of this Holy Spirit and in the clarification of the gospel. Paul speaks on that because it was real within Corinth. Apollos was somebody's favorite preacher. Paul was somebody else's favorite preacher. Christ was somebody else's favorite person. And these favorites and preferences were creating divisions. And this is why he calls us all to an upward agreement in worship. And this is why the Apostle Paul helps us to align our preferences and who we like and who we appreciate and who we'd rather hear from. He, he brings all of that to say, don't you understand that if you really understand what you're looking at and what you're listening to, it is God who gives the growth and it is his gospel that gives the power. If it's really worth listening to, this is Christ who is at work. And so, can we look at verse 10 again? I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions amongst you and that you be united in the same mind and also in the same judgment, in the same judgment. The fourth and final piece here. Having the same judgment simply calls us as a church to have consensus on what the king views. We're called into consensus on the views of the king on at least four things. What is good and evil, what is just and sinful. And I believe that Paul is kind of giving a nod to what he's going to cover later in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he was aghast by the fact that this local church was not in consensus on the young man who was sleeping with his father's wife. And they were not in unanimity on the judgment. In other words, their diversity had resulted in fragmentation of the truth. They had let their diversity become an idol. Diversity for us as a church is a fruit of the gospel. It is not the root of what we're doing. It's not our lead characteristic. It is something that the Lord has led us into by way of the gospel being hopefully fairly preached in a community that looks just like what each of you look like. 
But when diversity becomes the idol, when diversity becomes the trophy, when diversity becomes the pride, the prize, then we start coming up with diverse truths. This is my truth, and that's your truth. And that's what trapped them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They didn't have consensus on what was the truth. You see, being agreed on who Christ is calls us to have the same judgment. What is good? What is evil? What is just and what is sinful? Think about the iconic prayer that we pray often or we're taught as children. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The gospel is a declaration of the coming king who will judge each person according to their work and their willingness to receive the free gift of salvation by Jesus' completed work on the cross. The gospel levels the playing field of regardless of how much we think we need God and show that we desperately all need him the same. We see ourselves as sinners. The Bible refers to us all as that, refers to us all as broken, refers to us all with the same vocabulary. So the gospel says the same thing about all of us. This is why we're called to say the same thing. The gospel said the same thing. We're all sinners. We're all broken. We're all fallen. Guess what else it says? That we're all separated from God. And so the gospel is this great call away from being separated from God to walking in unity with God, but not unity on our terms, unity on his terms. We walk in unity with God, not because we're saying the same thing, but because we bend the knee and confess the same thing about Jesus' completed work on the cross. Jesus Christ came, voluntarily gave his life as a substitute for my life that was necessary to satisfy the wrath of God that was against all life. And then was raised by God from the grave in victory over sin, death, and the devil, the great foes of all humanity. And when we agree with God, this is what the word confess means, homo legeu, when we say the same thing as God about Christ and we believe that in our hearts, we are saved. We are then no longer separated from God. But something else happens. Something else happens. Not only is the separation between us and God then dismantled, but the natural segregation that exists between us is also dismantled. Even though segregation is not legally supported, it is still emotionally a reflex. I just gravitate toward the people that look like me, laugh like me, wear what I wear, and eat like me. I want a hearty plate of lemon pepper wings. I do not want to have any tofu with you. But the gospel, the gospel allows us to find a restaurant where we can both feast. I would not naturally grab, I was praying with some people just a moment ago, I wouldn't, why on earth would I be in the same room with you? Except it be for the gospel. So the gospel by its power not only tears down the middle wall of partition that separated us from God, but it also tears down every practical, logical reason we could have to be segregated from one another. And so the gospel is the, is the force that drives real unity in the church because it's constantly calling us up into agreement with who Christ is. Constantly calling our focus up to say the same thing. Constantly calling us up to pull in the same direction. Constantly reshaping our vision to say, this is the goal of God to be glorified in all the earth and to be glorified in the church as we see people from every tongue and nation come to know him. This is how the gospel unifies. And so I would urge us this morning or whatever is left of it to become deeply entrenched in the gospel. Let it become your reflex. 
My natural reflex and your natural reflex is towards separation and segregation. I run from God unless he's drawing me close. I run to my group who looks like me unless God is driving me toward you. Let the power of the gospel, God endorse pursuit of unity, not just tactical unity where we're just trying to get something done for our own name, but can we be drawn together in his name? The gospel makes it possible. We have to have the same judgment. We're called in to have consensus with the king, and that is having the same judgment. Can I pray for you? Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm thankful to you today for all those who would gather. Specifically, Lord God, whatever the drawing impulse is for this church, maybe somebody else that somebody else invited them, or perhaps they read about us or heard about us, and they're 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 curious as to what we're trying to do. Lord God, would you, would you, oh God, make it clear that the gospel drives the church to become a display of the reconciling hope of the gospel? to tear down the separation between you and us, but to also tear down any rationale we have for segregation between one another. Teach us through the gospel how to love you with our, our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourself. Would you not only, oh God, allow us to look left and right and to enjoy the beautiful array of diversity in our pews, but would you also, Lord God, move us by its power and deploy us to share of this great gospel through which you unified to everyone else that we encounter. Lord God, I pray for the person who is sitting on the sidelines of the gospel, knowing for a fact that they do not know you, but is considering your great truths. I pray, oh God, that you would continue to pierce that heart and draw them close. Make them curious in a redeeming way. I pray for the person, oh God, who has a natural tendency, a natural tendency toward a segregated heart to not love and joy being around people that are radically different from them. Lord God, would you dissolve, Lord God, those calluses and tear down those walls in those hearts? Would you help us be a church that pursues unity that you have endorsed through the power and the lens of the gospel? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.